service. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Where have you been hiding all these years? Where have you been, you queen of dear? I'll bet the good kind Lord from up above dropped you down in a bundle just for me to love. But where have you been hiding all these The stories about Roman Polanski are insane. He escaped from the Krakow ghetto on the day the Nazis took his father to a concentration camp. He used his murdered wife as a pickup line before her body was even cold. He drugged and sexually assaulted a 13-year-old girl and then fled the country when an angry judge was ready to throw the book at him. And Roman Polanski made great films horror and noir, and some of the tightest psychological thrillers ever made. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Henry Burr performing Where Have You Been Hiding in 1918. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And why would I play you that specific slice of mashed potato sculpting cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on February 1st, 1978. And that was the day that Roman Polanski skipped out on a sentencing hearing and fled the United States forever. On this episode, Nazis, murdered brides, angry judges, and Roman Polanski. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season 7, Hollywoodland. Nineteen forty-three, Krakow, Poland. Roman Polanski slipped his scrawny nine-year-old body under the chain-link fence that bordered the ghetto. Nazis were orbiting the place like slow-moving satellites. You could almost time their movements. But even better, Roman knew how to time his escapes. More importantly, his blonde hair meant he could pass on the outside. Less risk of feeling a hand on his shoulder and hearing those dreaded words, are you from the ghetto? Sometimes, if the Nazis caught a Jewish kid outside the fence, they'd rough him up and drag him back. Other times, they just shot him dead in the street. Sometimes, Roman snuck under the fence to search for food for himself and his father. Today, he had another mission. He grabbed onto the back of a trash cart as it passed by and rode it into the city dump. Late snow dusted the mounds of garbage. It took him hours, but 
Roman found what he was looking for. He tucked scraps of sheet metal in a bag and ran back to the house of the Catholic family his father had paid off to hide him when things in the ghetto looked particularly treacherous. Hiding Roman put the Catholic family in danger, but they kept space for him nonetheless, in a shed out back. If anyone asked, he was a nephew, visiting from the sticks. Roman closed the shed door behind him and laid out the scraps of metal. These were good. These would work. He could build his own makeshift movie projector, just like the one the Nazis used in the ghetto square to play their anti-Semitic propaganda. They forced the captive Jewish population to watch the films, Roman included. Close-up images of vermin that twitched on the screen and then faded into images of Jews in ragged clothes. Every time Roman watched the play of light and darkness, he imagined building his own projector. He had the scrap metal screen and now he just needed light. His father had a flashlight back in their cramped apartment. In these days, it was less cramped than before. Roman's pregnant mother and his sister were taken a few months earlier. They put his mother on a train bound for the chambers of Auschwitz. And Roman slipped back under the fence, back into the ghetto. He had to get that flashlight. He knew these streets by heart, and today they felt deserted. His footsteps echoed as he ran home, and the door to the stationery store downstairs hung open, and the shopkeeper was gone. Roman looked around, wondering if there was anything worth stealing. He took some cash out of the register and shoved it in his back pocket, and then looked up to the kid in the apartment next door, standing in the doorway. He probably had the same idea as Roman. Where is everybody, Roman asked. In the square, the kid said. Roman knew what that meant. The ghettos were a temporary solution, while the Nazi death machine ramped up to its full capacity. If everyone was heading to the square, it meant the Nazis were liquidating the ghetto. The boys had two choices. They could join the rest of Krakow's Jews in the square, or they could hide and risk getting shot if they were found. It wasn't worth the risk. In the square, some 16,000 Jews waited to be sorted into lines and then filled onto trains parked outside the fence. There was paperwork, forms to be filled out, and these things took time. Roman and the boy waited hours, and they were starving. Roman walked up to one of the Polish soldiers, a young kid in the gray uniform that separated the Nazis from their Polish collaborators. We haven't eaten, Roman said. Can we run home and get some bread? We promise we'll come back. The Polish soldier looked around. He knew where the trains were taking these people, offering any aid to a Jew who carried a death sentence. But these were kids, for Christ's sake. Don't run, he said. Walk. Roman grabbed the other kid's arm and walked him slowly through the archway at the edge of the square. As soon as they were out of sight, the boys took off running. There was a break in the fence up ahead, and Roman pulled the chain link out of the dirt and motioned for the kid to slide under. The kid hesitated. We should go back, he said. Find our parents. Didn't he get it? There was no going back. Not ever. If they didn't leave now, the only way out was on one of those trains. But the kid knew he wouldn't last outside the fences. His dark, curly hair marked him as Jewish, as obvious as the armbands they were forced to wear. Roman didn't wait any longer. He said goodbye and then climbed under the fence and out of the ghetto. The other kid didn't even make it onto the trains. The Nazis rounded up all the children that night and shot them dead in the schoolyard. Outside the fence, Roman blended into the crowd of onlookers watching as Jews were loaded onto trains bound for Belzec, Treblinka, and Auschwitz. Roman spotted his father in line and ran up to him. His father swatted him away. Get lost, kid. His father looked at Roman like he didn't know him. He looked at the Nazis, pleading ignorance. And then he looked directly at his son. Get the hell out.
Roman Polanski, spent the rest of the war hiding with Catholic families in Krakow, scrounging for food in the streets of the occupied city. When Poland was finally liberated, it was by the Russians who claimed the country as their own. In the post-World War II early days of the Cold War, the United States and the USSR ramped up weapons production in the space race. They also ramped up the propaganda machines. Soviets poured money into supporting culture in the Eastern Bloc countries, including founding a school for filmmaking in occupied Poland. Roman Polanski was accepted in 1954 when he was about 20, part of a community of edgy and experimental filmmakers who worked at the edges of what the Soviets thought was palatable. Polanski's debut film, Knife in the Water, was one of the first films made in post-war Poland that wasn't about the war. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film, and it rocketed Roman Polanski to international stardom. He was ready to hop over the Iron Curtain as easily as he snuck under the barbed wire in closing the Krakow ghetto. And his first stop was Paris. Paris, in the mid-60s, was home to the hottest filmmaking scene outside of Hollywood. Roman Polanski could walk past a cafe on the left bank and see Bridget Bardot sipping champagne or Catherine Deneuve, who'd star in Polanski's next film, Repulsion, smoking an unfiltered cigarette with that certain French je ne sais quoi. Paris was the center of a film revolution, but other revolutions were brewing. Wild ideas about freedom, cultural freedom, intellectual freedom, sexual freedom. Ideas that would explode in the riots of May 1968. Slogans were stenciled on cafe walls and spray-painted in the alleyways. Slogans like, be realistic, ask the impossible, enjoy without hindrance, it is forbidden to forbid. The radicals wanted to overthrow anything that reeked of tradition, capitalism, the church, the state. For some, age of consent laws regarding sex, they reeked of puritanism. They wanted the laws abolished so the kids could be free from the domination of their parents. It might have sounded very modern, but what they were really talking about was a philosophical justification for sex with minors. And Roman Polanski, free from the shackles of occupied Poland, was listening. Los Angeles was gripped in fear. The celebrity set was locking their doors, sleeping with guns under their pillows. They looked at everyone with an unhealthy amount of distrust. The only stars tourists could hope to catch a peek of were forever embedded in the sidewalk of Hollywood Boulevard. The bars and the restaurants were empty. Everyone was home, caught in the grip of paranoia after a series of brutal murders just a few weeks earlier. Murders that took the life of actress Sharon Tate and her unborn baby, among others. The killers were on the loose, and anyone could be next. Meanwhile, New York City was on a whole other trip. Looking around the lanes on 2nd Avenue, you wouldn't know that celebrities were cowering in fear some 3,000 miles away. A highly exclusive hangout had tables reserved for Andy Warhol, Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, and Diana Ross. And those tables were getting used no matter what people were worrying about in California. Accommodations were made at the lanes for visitors, particularly the male artistic geniuses that the owner counted among her favorites. The boys were allowed to bring their arm candy with them, girlfriends, trophy wives, or that evening's particular slice of strange. On this night, in August 1969, the place was packed, as usual. 
The editor of Harper's Magazine brought his friend, an investment banker. And the banker brought his girlfriend, a Norwegian model, tall drink of water. And the group was halfway through their dinner when the restaurant went quiet. They turned to see who was a big enough deal to cause a hush in the cynical crowd. And they could barely make out the top of the guy's head over the diner seated near them. It was Roman Polanski. He may have been diminutive, but he was ubiquitous. Roman Polanski had been all over the newspapers that month. Not for his work, but for the shocking murder of his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate. The murders didn't cause New Yorkers to freak out. Whatever happened on the left coast was an LA problem, but the couple was a topic of discussion, particularly Polanski, who was hounded by Hollywood paparazzi at LAX before he could even identify his wife's body. The hostess seated him at the table next to the magazine editor, the banker, and the model. Polanski had a few drinks, and then he pulled his chair over, cramming it in between the banker and the model. His eyes were unable to focus on anything but the girl. She squirmed. She looked to her date for help, but the banker was starstruck and useless. Polanski slipped his hand under the table and then up the model's skirt, and he leaned in to whisper in her ear, I'll make another Sharon Tate out of you, he said. Well, what the fuck did that mean? Did he make her a star, his next wife, or a fucking corpse? The model removed Polanski's hand and laid it on the table. She turned to her stump of a date. We're leaving. Polanski let them go. There would always be other girls, and there would always be other Sharon Tates. In the months between the Tate-LaBianca murders and the Manson family's arrest for the crimes, the LA press, not to mention the cops, were quick to slap suspicion on anyone and everyone, including Roman Polanski. Never mind that Polanski was fucking his way through every piece of ass in Europe when his pregnant wife was murdered. The press insinuated he'd masterminded the crime from abroad, cutting himself loose from the old ball and chain. There was no evidence, but there were hunches. What was a creepy little twerp like him doing with a stunner like Sharon Tate to begin with, anyway? Or so went the thinking of the press. Polanski made a public performance of grief, but once the cameras were off, he dealt with the brutal death of his wife by burying himself in sex, drugs, and booze. And there were plenty of women willing to spend time with a grieving widower who was also a filmmaking auteur. Fuck that model at Elaine's if she didn't want to be the next Sharon Tate. But Polanski didn't always take no for an answer. In February 1970, months after the murders, two of Polanski's New York friends tried to set him up with a struggling actress. They thought she might be able to cheer him up. The foursome went out on a double date and then back to Polanski's suite at the plaza for coffee and drinks. At some point, the actress was filled in that, oh yeah, by the way, Roman's on acid. And then the friends left, leaving the actress alone with a grieving director who was drunk and tripping balls. She looked into the saucers of Polanski's pupils and she told him she had to go. He tried to pin her down on the bed. Polanski was short, but surprisingly strong. She barely managed to wrestle free and get out the door. She sprinted down the hallway, tripping in her heels, and she made it to the elevator and desperately mashed the call button, but the doors refused to open. She turned around. Polanski was approaching. She faced the elevator and slapped the button again. She turned to look behind her, and he was getting closer. And the elevator doors finally opened. She rushed inside and quickly shut the doors behind her. She watched them close on Polanski's wild, dilated eyes. A few weeks later, he met up with the actress to apologize. She alleged that after he made the apology, he tried to sexually assault her again. And it wasn't always grown women that had similar tales to tell about Roman Polanski. In 1972, it was a 15-year-old model. Her parents gave her permission to visit Polanski at his home in Switzerland. 
Over 40 years later, she went to the Swiss police and accused him of rape. In 1975, it was a 10-year-old whose mother set up a photo shoot for her with Polanski on a deserted stretch of rocky oceanfront along the Pacific Coast Highway. Over 40 years later, she accused Polanski of sexual assault in an interview with The Sun. And the next year, 1976, back at Polanski's house in Switzerland, it was a 15-year-old. She later accused Polanski of groping her under the table at dinner while the adults sipped wine and gossiped about Hollywood. It took decades for these accusations to come to light. But if they are true, then Roman Polanski spent the 1970s molesting and raping women and underage girls, abetted by their parents, quietly ignored by the Hollywood elite. People talked, and people knew what Roman Polanski was all about. And so, by 1977, someone at Vogue Paris surely had some clue what he was all about when Roman Polanski was hired to photograph underage models for the magazine, a job that would land Roman Polanski in very hot water. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The rented Mercedes pulled up to the curb. A teenage girl stepped out, clutching a bundle of clothes to her chest. Her mother stood in the doorway. She was anxious to hear how the photo shoot had gone, but the girl wasn't in the mood to talk. If he asks, tell him I have asthma, the girl said as she pushed past her mother. I told him that because I didn't want to get in the jacuzzi. Then the girl was gone, down the hall, slamming her bedroom door, and her mother was confused. Why would she say she had asthma? Roman Polanski got out of the car and sidled up the walkway. He wore ankle boots with heels that gave him an extra two inches in height and a bit of cowboy swagger. He smiled at the girl's mother, and the smile put her at ease. This was the famous director, the tragic widower, the man who was going to make her daughter a star. She invited Polanski in and offered him a drink. He sat in the living room with her and the girl's older sister, and the family's dog, Natasha, hid behind a chair. People may talk, but dogs, no. And the bitch was edgy around Polanski. He joked about it. He bragged about how well he got along with another Natasha, Natasha Kinski, the 15-year-old model he just photographed in the Seychelles. He got that Natasha to relax, but this Natasha wouldn't come anywhere near him. Do you want to see the photos, Polanski asked. Of course they did. Polanski went back to the car, and the girl's sister knocked on her bedroom door, but she wasn't coming out. Exhausted, her sister figured. Her first professional photo shoot. It must have taken it right out of her. She was just a kid, after all. Only 13 years old. Polanski came back with a boxy slide viewer and a joint. He blazed it up and passed it around. He talked rapidly as the girl's mother and sister took turns peering into the slide viewer. Her mother couldn't believe how shitty the pictures were. She was an actress, an aspiring one at least, and she'd been photographed professionally loads of times, but, but these? These sucked. Bad lighting, awkward cropping. Her daughter looked miserable. And while Polanski talked, the girl's older sister made her way through more of the slides. She got to one that stopped her dead. She put down the slide viewer and looked at Polanski, who smiled, oozing charm. Motherfucker, she said, and the room went cold. The dog picked up on the vibe and lost it. She ran in circles. She barked, she pissed on the rug. And the girl's sister swatted at the dog. She grabbed it by the collar and dragged it out of the room. Polanski leaned back on the couch. That's not the way to discipline a dog, he said calmly. But the girl's mother wasn't so calm because now she'd seen the pictures. Her 13-year-old daughter, naked, 
rising out of the steam of a jacuzzi. What was it her daughter had said? Tell him I have asthma? She took one last look at Polanski and said, get him the fuck out of here. She didn't dream of becoming an actress, but if you lived in LA, the city did the dreaming for you. Her mother dragged her to the West Coast while she pursued an acting career of her own that never quite panned out. A few roles in commercials and TV, but mostly she found work as an extra on the Hollywood party scene. And that's how she met Roman Polanski, rubbing elbows at an LA club while her daughter was back home doing math homework. The director's ears perked up when she mentioned she had a 13-year-old who wanted to break into the business. Polanski said he'd been hired by Vogue Paris to do a piece on the differences between American girls and French girls, teenagers. He was vague on the details, but the girl's mother invited him over to the house to talk about it. Initially, the girl wasn't impressed. More tomboy than Lolita, she came into the living room to meet Polanski wearing jeans and sneakers and a baseball hat with her pet cockatiel perched on it. She'd seen Chinatown. She didn't like it. Roman Polanski was 30 years older than her, but not an inch taller, even with his high-heeled boots. She thought he looked like a ferret, and the dog didn't like him either, which was always a bad sign. But her mother told her this could be her big break, and she hung on Polanski's every word. A few days later, he came to pick up the girl after school for a test shoot. Her mother asked if she could come along, but Polanski said it might make it hard for the girl to relax. They drove up to a hill, half secluded by trees. She brought two tops with her, and after Polanski shot a roll of the film, he asked her to switch to the other shirt. She turned away from him to change, but Polanski kept shooting. He gave her directions. Bite your lip. Smile. Don't smile. But he was getting annoyed. It was clear to the girl that she was botching the job. She wasn't giving Polanski what he wanted. Then, he asked her to take her top off. She hesitated for a moment. This was a man who could make her a big star. He could make her another Sharon Tate. And she took her top off and she tried to play it cool, professional, secure. But when a kid sped by on his dirt bike, she instinctively covered herself up. Polanski scowled. He said they lost the light. He drove her home without saying another word. And she was sure she'd missed her chance. Part of her was relieved. Maybe she didn't want this. And maybe it wasn't worth it. When Polanski called the house the next day to set up another shoot, she felt sick to her stomach. She hadn't told her mom about the topless photos, but she wanted to give the shoot another try after the previous day's botched session. Polanski said this time they were going to his friend Jack's house, up in the Hollywood Hills. Again, the girl wasn't impressed. Jack Nicholson wasn't exactly a teen heartthrob. Jack wasn't home, but his housekeeper let them in. Jack's girlfriend, Angelica Houston, was gone for the day, but... Polanski assured the housekeeper and the girl that he was given the okay to shoot here. Good light, he explained. He asked the girl if she was thirsty, and she was. And there was nothing in Jack's fridge but wine and champagne. Polanski held up a bottle. Should I open this, he asked. She shrugged. She wanted to play it cool. Roman handed her a glass. He poured one for the housekeeper, too. And the three of them chatted and sipped bubbly. So adult. So mature. The girl watched the shadows grow long. Weren't they about to lose that good light? And the housekeeper had errands to run, so she left Polanski and the girl alone. And they started the shoot outside on a balcony. Should I drink the champagne or just pretend, she asked. Drink it, Polanski said. He made sure her glass was never empty, which made it impossible to keep track of how much she was drinking. And she hadn't eaten. Usually there was a snack waiting for her after school, but 
he'd whisked her off before she had a chance to eat it. When Polanski asked her to take her top off, she obliged. This was for Vogue, not Playboy. They'd be tasteful, over-the-shoulder shots. Besides, Polanski was a famous director. She had nothing to worry about, right? Let's take some photos in the jacuzzi, he suggested. He had the girl call her mom first, though, to assure her that she was okay. But when the girl said her friend hadn't come with them, her mother offered to come get her. It's fine, she said. I'm at Jack Nicholson's house. I'm with Roman Polanski. But when they got off the phone, Polanski produced a little jar of pills. Is this a quaalude? He asked. Champagne fizzed in her head. Why was he asking her whether or not this was a quaalude? Didn't he know what kind of pills he was carrying around? Polanski said he was worried that if he took a whole pill, he wouldn't be able to drive her home. Maybe they could split one, though. Topless, she got into the jacuzzi and tried to cover herself up with bubbles. No, no, Polanski insisted. She'd have to take her underwear off as well. You could see them through the water. It ruined everything. She obeyed, and Polanski kept shooting. Finally, he put down the camera. We've lost the light, he said. I'm getting in. She didn't know how to respond. Then Polanski stripped naked and got into the jacuzzi with her. He slid over, closer. Panic and champagne and quaalude collided in the girl's empty stomach. I can't breathe in here, she said. I have asthma. I have to go. Polanski suggested she just needed to lie down. He said he'd take her home in a bit. Then he led her upstairs, and her head was spinning. He closed the door behind them. And then, a knock at the door. Polanski left the girl on the bed and went to answer it. And she could see the woman in the doorway. It wasn't the housekeeper. It was someone else. Tall, dark, elegant. She wanted to call out for help, but she couldn't. Roman, what's going on in there? Angelica Houston asked. Nothing, Polanski said. We're finishing the shoot. Angelica looked past him, but she couldn't see the girl in the dark. Polanski talked to her for another minute, and then shut the door and locked it. The LAPD rushed the evidence envelope to the DA's office. Men in suits sipped instant coffee and waited for the delivery. Roman Polanski's lawyers, the LA County prosecutor, medical experts for both sides. The envelope was opened and flipped over. A pair of little girls' underwear tumbled onto the desk. The underwear was already the subject of serious debate. The trial was set to start soon, and Polanski's lawyers passed on a plea bargain intended to help keep the victim's name out of the papers. But this evidence changed the state of play. Both sides wanted access, and the judge went with a classic solution. They would cut the underwear in half. It wasn't that simple, though. Every stain, every mark, any piece that could be anything had to be split. Both teams sent their samples to the labs for analysis. The defense had money and resources and didn't have to jump through bureaucratic hoops. They expected to hear back in two weeks. Two weeks and one day later, Polanski's lawyers called the prosecutor's office. Whatever they heard back from the lab scared the shit out of them. Hey, uh, is that plea bargain still on the table? The 13-year-old girl who was photographed by Roman Polanski went to the police with her family the morning after the photo shoot at Jack Nicholson's house. In excruciating detail, she told doctors, cops, and the district attorney that Polanski had drugged her, taken her upstairs, and sexually assaulted her. 
Search warrants were issued for Jack Nicholson's house and for Polanski's suite at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. The search at Jack's house turned up a little cocaine. At Polanski's suite, however, the cops ran into the director on his way out to dinner. Is this gonna take more than a few minutes, he asked the cops. Yes, they told him. Maybe call your friends and tell them you're gonna be late. Polanski took the cops upstairs and he was fidgety. He talked too much. He was also surprisingly forthcoming. He handed over the camera and the pictures. He didn't see the big deal. Yeah, she was young, but it was just sex. Nothing to get hung up about, he thought. But Roman Polanski was arrested on multiple charges. Furnishing drugs to a minor, lewd or lascivious acts upon a child, unlawful sexual intercourse, rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy. The press ate it up. Polanski was the perfect villain, a tiny little foreigner who made dirty movies. Did they know for sure he didn't have a hand in his wife's murder? That pretty pregnant blonde who got chopped up while he was fucking around in Europe. Polanski's lawyers went after the victim. Who'd she have sex with before? And why weren't those guys prosecuted? The girl's name was kept out of the press, but with the lawyers attempting to put her on public trial, it wasn't gonna stay that way. Her family wanted this thing over with, and the DA put out a plea offer, and Polanski's lawyers laughed it off. That was before they got the lab results, though. Now, Polanski pled to a lesser charge of unlawful sexual intercourse, which gave the judge a lot of leeway in sentencing. State prison, institutionalization, deportation, all of it was on the table. But as long as Polanski didn't have a rape charge on him, most countries in Europe wouldn't extradite him. The probation office recommended Polanski be let off with time served. The judge decided not to listen. He sentenced Polanski to a 90-day observation and psychiatric evaluation at Chino State Penitentiary, which was not strictly a legal sentence. Even the prosecutor objected. The judge wanted Polanski punished, but he didn't want him shivved in a county lockup. Using the psych eval as punishment would keep the press happy and keep Polanski alive. He told the lawyers to go out into the courtroom and put on a show, and the prosecutor should argue for custody, and the defense should argue for probation. And then the judge would issue the sentence they already secretly agreed on, and the press would be none the wiser. If no one talked about the agreement and the psych eval came back clean, that'd be the end of the affair for Roman Polanski. But rather than report to Chino for observation, Polanski flew to Paris to work on a film. His lawyers explained that there were hundreds of jobs, millions of dollars on the line, and the movie was a hack job for Dino De Laurentiis, but Polanski needed the money to cover his legal bills. And the judge was assured Polanski would be hard at work the whole time, and he'd return to the States as soon as the film was done. So imagine how pissed off that judge was when he saw Roman Polanski in newspapers across the world hoisting a stein at Oktoberfest in Munich, seated between two teenage girls. The judge was pretty fucking pissed. So the judge ordered Polanski to come back to the United States to serve his 90 days. Roman Polanski was released though, only after serving 42. The evaluation recommended probation, no further time. But ultimately, it was up to the judge, who Polanski had embarrassed in the press by flaunting his freedom with more underage girls. The day before the sentencing, the judge called the lawyers into his chambers. He wasn't gonna listen to the psych report and he wasn't going to honor his promise that things were over for Polanski. He would issue a sentence that would satisfy the press, a nice long prison term for Roman Polanski. In a few weeks after things quieted down, Polanski's lawyers could come back and the judge would let Polanski out. All Polanski had to do was trust the judge and it would all be over soon. As they walked out of chambers, Polanski's lawyers asked the prosecutor, do you think I should trust him? The prosecutor smirked. I don't know why not. 
You trusted him once, and the lawyers laid out the situation for Polanski. I'll see you guys later, Polanski said. Not tomorrow at the sentencing hearing. Later. It wasn't the first time Roman Polanski knew he had to get out. Just like when he was a nine-year-old boy in the Krakow ghetto, Roman Polanski knew how to time his escape. He drove to Dino De Laurentiis' office, where Dino handed him a thick envelope. Script notes? Location scouts? No. It was cash. Enough cash to run away with. Enough to fly. So Roman Polanski flew out of LAX that night for Paris. He could never come back to the United States without risking arrest. And that didn't stop him from directing film after film, working with the biggest names in the industry. Even years later, as further accusations piled up against him in the wake of the Me Too movement, stars continued to line up to defend him. In Hollywood, Roman Polanski was many things. A genius, an artist, a monster hiding in plain sight. It's a story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.